Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode, Apostasy Now. Not too long ago, I wrote a series of articles, which I published in blog form on another website. Three of those articles deal with the common theme of apostasy. The first one is titled, I Apostate. The second one is titled, Apostasy Now. And the third one is titled, Is the LDS Church in Apostasy? I want to jump in the time machine tonight and go back and review those three different articles and see how well they hold up over time. The first of those articles, as I said, is titled, I Apostate, and those of you who are fans of Isaac Asimov will probably get the reference. This was published back in March of 2014. It goes like this, I am an apostate, or so I hear. It has recently come to my attention that certain members of my ward have taken to calling me an apostate, likely because of articles I have posted here at this blog site. It is hard for me to tell precisely what it is I may have said or written that causes others to view me as an apostate, largely because they haven't been willing to say it to my face. So I am left to speculate. Am I an apostate because I received a spiritual witness of the Book of Mormon when I prayed my way through it at the age of 18, a witness that has never left me and which I could never deny? Am I an apostate because of the articles I wrote arguing the Book of Mormon is a product of the ancient world, or because of the article I wrote showing the Book of Mormon is a product of the modern world. And there I provide links to the articles that I'm referring to. Am I an apostate because I have demonstrated a complexity to Book of Mormon narratives evincing patterns likely beyond the abilities of an early 19th century upstate New York farm boy? See here, 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 and here. And there I provide the four links. Am I an apostate because I believe Joseph Smith to have been in touch with the divine during his brief prophetic career? Or is it because I recognize he was a person who, like the rest of us, struggled with his humanity and suffered from numerous character defects? Am I an apostate because I voted to legalize gay marriage? Or is it because I believe the overturning of state laws forbidding gay marriage by federal judges to be unconstitutional? And there I provide links to those articles. I was definitely prolific during this time period. Am I an apostate because I agree with President Uchtdorf that, quote, leaders in the church have simply made mistakes, unquote? Or is it because I disagree with Elder Oaks that church leaders are above criticism for such mistakes and that it does not matter that the criticism is true? Am I an apostate because I do not believe God instituted a policy denying the priesthood to black men and temple ordinances to black men and women? Or is it because I believe the church should apologize for this racist policy? And there I provide a link to the article that I had written, which I read a few weeks ago on Radio Free Mormon in the podcast titled, How About an Apology for the Priesthood Ban? Going on. Am I an apostate because I believe I have personally experienced all the spiritual gifts set forth in the seventh article of faith? Am I an apostate because I stood up for Mother Eve when she was being denigrated at church and raised my voice while so doing? And there I provide links to those articles. Am I an apostate because I posted a profile at Ordained Women, joining my voice with a rising tide of church members who believe the priesthood ban on women should be lifted? even as the priesthood ban on black men was lifted in 1978. 
Am I an apostate because I agree with the LDS definition of hell and damnation as, quote, the state of being stopped in one's progress? Or is it because I perceive the Correlation Committee has managed to create a church that matches the definition? Am I an apostate because I agree with Joseph Smith that one of the grand fundamental principles of Mormonism is to receive truth, let it come from whence it may, and that, quote, we should gather all the good and true principles in the world and treasure them up, or we shall not come out true Mormons? Or is it because I disagree with Elder Boyd K. Packer's comment that some things that are true are not very useful? Am I an apostate because I agree with Joseph Smith that, quote, the creeds set up stakes and say, hitherto shalt thou come and no further, which I cannot subscribe to? Or is it because I am at odds with Elder M. Russell Ballard's discouragement of teachers who, quote, stray from the approved curriculum materials? Is it because I sense that one can faithfully attend church meetings for a lifetime and never really graduate from primary? Am I an apostate because I disagree with President Eyring when he suggests a faithful Mormon should accept any calling extended by church leaders and that the failure to do so puts one in, quote, spiritual peril? Or is it because I see this position as conflicting with the fundamental doctrine of agency? The agency scripture tells us Satan sought to destroy when he rebelled. Is it because I believe many in the LDS church have effectively redefined agency to mean the freedom to do what you are told? Am I an apostate because I believe it is more important to be a good person than it is to be a member of the LDS church? Am I an apostate because I believe God's revelations and visions are available to all people everywhere and are not restricted to members of only one organization? And there I cite to 2 Nephi 29.7 and Alma 29.8. Am I an apostate because I recognize that the last revelation published by the LDS Church was received in 1918, a full 96 years ago? Well, as of this evening, when I'm recording this, it is 2020, so now it's more than a full century. But at the time I wrote this, it was 96 years prior that the last revelation was received by the church. And of course, that's Doctrine and Covenants section 138. Or because I can do the math and calculate that for more than the last half of the LDS church's existence, it has been without new canonized revelation. Am I an apostate because I believe there is a substantive difference between a revelation of God's will and a declaration that such a revelation was received? Or is it because I do not recognize continuing revelation in sermons that simply rehash the same subjects over and over again? Am I an apostate because I agree with Jesus that prophets will be known by their fruits? Or is it because I wonder that the decisive qualifications for the LDS prophet seems to be the ability to outlive 14 of his colleagues? Am I an apostate because I disagree with Elder Bruce R. McConkie's seven deadly heresies? Or is it because I agree with Joseph Smith that a man isn't damned for believing too much, but they are damned for unbelief? Is it because I, like Joseph Smith, want the liberty to believe as I please, and that it feels so good not to be trammeled? Is it because I agree with Joseph Smith that it don't prove that a man is not a good man because he errs in doctrine? 
Am I an apostate because I have slipped the surly bonds of correlated dogma? Because I have realized that there really are words of wisdom to be sought out of the best books, if only I take the time to read them? Or is it because I have found that, in so doing, the heavens are now open as never before, and God is more willing to speak freely to me as one person speaks with another? And finally, am I an apostate because I believe the LDS Church should accept and fellowship members of various opinions and orientations? Or is it because I believe Mormons should not be labeling other members with differing viewpoints as apostate? Perhaps those who have called me apostate behind my back will read this post and clarify to my face why they think I deserve that appellation. I hope they do. So that's the end of my article titled, I Apostate from March of 2014. The next article I wrote dealing with apostasy is titled, Apostasy Now. This is number two in our all-time apostasy hit list. This one was published in June of 2015 and goes like this. More Mormons are leaving the LDS Church than ever in its history. Not content with this, church leaders are also kicking out Mormons in record numbers. The last two years have racked up a spate of excommunications of Mormons for what is termed apostasy. What is apostasy? Well, in practice, it has come to mean holding the wrong idea and then telling it to somebody else. But what is this wrong idea members are not allowed to share? The answer to that is contained in the most recent excommunication of Alan Rock Waterman. What constitutes apostasy? First, we know what that wrong idea is not. It is obviously not hypocrisy and being two-faced. How do we know this? Because in spite of the fact the LDS Church has publicly proclaimed it is okay to voice your opinion about church matters and to blog about such things, Mormons are still being excommunicated for doing just that. If hypocrisy and being two-faced constituted apostasy, the entire church leadership would have to excommunicate themselves. The list of those who have been excommunicated for apostasy is growing long. Denver Snuffer, Kate Kelly, Carson and Marissa Calderwood, John DeLynn, and last week, Rock Waterman. I apologize if I have missed any names on the list, but one of the good things about apostates is you don't have to worry about hurting their feelings. Despite the mixed messages the church has sent about what constitutes apostasy, actions speak louder than words. A comparison of John DeLynn and Rock Waterman will make the point only too clear. The process of elimination. Sherlock Holmes described the process of elimination this way. When you have eliminated the impossible, perhaps I should be reading this in an English accent, when you have eliminated the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. John DeLynn and Rock Waterman are as different in their religious beliefs as night and day. They are at opposite ends of the spectrum, but they were both excommunicated. I propose an experiment that we utilize the process of elimination by listing the reasons for why these two were found guilty of apostasy. Once we have done so, we can compare the list and by the process of elimination, perhaps find out what apostasy really is. Number one, the Book of Mormon. Rock Waterman believes the Book of Mormon is the Word of God. John DeLynn does not. No match there. This means that one's belief in the Book of Mormon has nothing to do 
with apostasy. You can be an apostate whether you believe the Book of Mormon is true or not. Number two, Joseph Smith. Rock Waterman believes Joseph Smith was a prophet of God. John DeLynn does not. Again, no match. From this, we may conclude you can be an apostasy if you don't believe Joseph Smith was a prophet. And you can also be an apostasy if you do believe Joseph Smith was a prophet. Number three, Jesus Christ. Rock Waterman believes Jesus Christ is the Son of God and the Savior of the world. John DeLynn believes neither of these things. No match. Surprising as it may seem, it makes no difference what beliefs a person holds about Jesus Christ. You can have a burning testimony of everything the scriptures teach about Jesus and still be an apostate as far as the LDS Church is concerned. Number four, church leaders. Rock Waterman does not believe modern church leaders are necessarily prophets, seers, and revelators as they are billed. But wait a minute, neither does John DeLynn. We finally have a match. What does this mean? It means that if we have found the one common denominator between the excommunications of Rock Waterman and John DeLynn, we have likely identified the one thing that constitutes apostasy. And with this match, we have done so. The sole reason that Rock Waterman and John DeLynn were excommunicated for apostasy is because of their lack of belief in the prophetic calling of current LDS church leadership. Conclusions. What is our takeaway from this experiment? It doesn't matter what you believe about the Book of Mormon. It doesn't matter what you believe about Joseph Smith. It doesn't even matter what you believe about Jesus Christ. If you have difficulty sustaining current church leadership as prophets, you are in a state of apostasy. Follow the prophet has become the primary tenet of the LDS Church, more important than follow the Savior. Case in point, as taught by the Church, if the prophet tells you to do something the Savior is against, and you do it anyway, you will be blessed. And here I'm referring to the LDS Church Manual titled Teachings of Presidents of the Church, the one dealing with Ezra Taft Benson. This is from chapter 11 titled, Follow the Living Prophet. In that chapter, Ezra Taft Benson recounts the story originally told by President Marion G. Romney of this incident which happened to him. I remember years ago when I was a bishop, I had President Heber J. Grant talk to our ward. After the meeting, I drove him home. Standing by me, he put his arm over my shoulder and said, My boy, you always keep your eye on the president of the church, and if he ever tells you to do anything, and it is wrong, and you do it, the Lord will bless you for it. Then with a twinkle in his eye, he said, But you don't need to worry. The Lord will never let his mouthpiece lead the people astray. That's from General Conference, October of 1960. But this story by President Marion G. Romney telling about his experience with President Heber J. Grant has been republished and reproduced multiple times since then to the point where pretty much every member of the church has heard it. And it was recently reincarnated and republished in an official church manual, Teachings of Presidents of the Church, Ezra Taft Benson. So back to my article, Case in Point, as taught by the church, if the prophet tells you to do something the Savior is against, and you do it anyway, you will be blessed. Who is given supremacy here? The prophet or the Savior? Funny, we never hear that saying the other way around. In other words, we never hear a church leader saying that if you follow the dictates of your conscience, even when it contradicts what your priesthood leader is telling you, you will be blessed for it. 
We never hear that saying the other way around. Question. Why is it the organization that claims to be Christ's one and only true church is more concerned with its members' views about its leaders than it is with its members' views about Jesus? Because follow the prophet is the primary tenet, doubting the prophet is the cardinal sin. You can doubt almost anything you want in the LDS Church. You can doubt the Book of Mormon. You can doubt Joseph Smith. You can even doubt that Jesus Christ is the Savior. But don't you dare doubt the prophet. This is a strange state of affairs. It might cause a person to wonder if this position makes any sense. It might cause a person to reflect on the church leaders who teach this. And upon further reflection, it might cause a person to begin to doubt the inspiration of those church leaders. By their fruits ye shall know them. The horror. The horror. Okay, that's the end of my article titled Apostasy Now from June of 2015. The last article in tonight's presentation dealing with apostasy is titled, Is the LDS Church in Apostasy? This article came out in July of 2015, a little ditty that goes something like this. In recent years, more and more Mormons have publicly voiced the opinion that the LDS Church is in a state of apostasy. Elder Dallin H. Oaks jetted to Boise, Idaho, to douse such allegations in a 15 June 2015 Tri-State Fireside, where his argument consisted of a slightly more sophisticated version of, I know you are, but what am I? So I wrote this article in July of 2015, and it was only the month previous to this that in June of 2015, in fact, on June 15, 2015, that Elder Dallin H. Oaks went to Boise for what has come to be known as the Boise Rescue. I leave the question of whether the LDS Church is in a state of apostasy to wiser heads than mine. The point of this paper, however, is to examine one area in which the LDS Church currently engages in a practice that the LDS Church in former days declared to be a hallmark of apostasy. That area is the use of church councils to establish doctrine. Growing up in the church, it was common to hear lessons and talks on the great apostasy, by which was meant the falling away from the true religion Jesus established. The true church was always identified by prophets who received direct revelation from God. As the apostasy occurred, however, such revelation ceased. After the apostasy was in full swing, when doctrinal decisions had to be made, church leaders gathered in ecumenical councils and deliberated on the issue. Here the Council of Nicaea was usually brought up as an example in the lesson or the talk. This was a means of establishing doctrine completely foreign to God's true church, but councils were held precisely because there was no longer a prophet on earth who could receive revelation directly from God. The introduction of such church councils was generally seen among Latter-day Saints as a sure sign of the great apostasy. An example of this sort of teaching can be found in the December 1995 Enzyme magazine. This in an article written by Andrew C. Skinner titled Apostasy, Restoration, and Lessons in Faith. From that article, I quote the following. All historical Christian churches agree that revelation for the direction of the church ceased with the last of the apostles. History shows, in fact, that after the first century, 
Church leaders, in order to decide important issues, could not and did not appeal to heaven for authoritative direction because they did not possess the keys of the kingdom. There were still honorable people on the earth who received personal inspiration for their individual lives, but, and here's the money quote from the Enzyme Magazine, December 1995, but, the church was run largely by men who gathered in councils and held debates, letting their decisions rest on the collected wisdom of mortal beings. That's the end of the quote from the Enzyme article. Going on with my article, 12 years after this Enzyme article, however, the LDS Church announced a new procedure for establishing doctrine, a procedure eerily similar to the one criticized not only in the 1995 Enzyme, but since the early days of the Restoration. In short, the LDS Church announced that church doctrine is established in councils. Mormonism officially entered this brave new world on May 4, 2007, with this announcement on the official LDS Church website. Quote, Not every statement made by a church leader, past or present, necessarily constitutes doctrine. A single statement made by a single leader, on a single occasion, often represents a personal, though well-considered, opinion, but is not meant to be officially binding for the whole church. With divine inspiration, wait for it, with divine inspiration, the First Presidency and the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles counsel together to establish doctrine that is consistently proclaimed in official church publications. Let me read that last sentence once again. This is where things get turned on its head. With divine inspiration, the First Presidency and the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles counsel together to establish doctrine that is consistently proclaimed in official church publications. This quote may sound familiar because it's the same quote from Elder Todd, no, Elder D. Todd Christofferson, which he has stated in general conference as well. With this announcement, this is back to my commentary, with this announcement, a new church council was created, or if not created, at least formally revealed. Not just the council of the First Presidency, not just the council of the Twelve Apostles, but a new council of both the First Presidency and the Twelve Apostles. And according to this announcement from May 2007, the purpose of this new church council is to, quote, establish doctrine, unquote. Sort of like a latter-day magisterium. No longer are statements by church leaders considered doctrine, even if that church leader happens to have been the prophet. A new method has been substituted in its place. Now doctrine is to be established not through revelation, but through a council that meets together and deliberates by weighing the scriptures, the teachings of church leaders, and past practice, or in other words, tradition. This is what they consider when establishing doctrine. They weigh the scriptures, they weigh the teachings of church leaders, and they weigh past practice, or in other words, tradition. Now, wait a second. Surely I am adding words to the Mormon newsroom statement here. That statement says nothing about the council deliberating about doctrine by weighing scriptures, teachings of church leaders, and past practice. I must be adding those words to make the process sound more like the historical church councils identified by the LDS Church as a mile marker on Apostasy Avenue. Well, truth be told, I am actually quoting Elder Christofferson from his April 2012 General Conference Address where he said this, 
The president of the Church may announce or interpret doctrines based on revelation to him. Doctrinal exposition may also come through the combined council of the First Presidency and Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. Council deliberations will often include a weighing of canonized scriptures, the teachings of Church leaders, and past practice. This statement deserves a little dissecting. Number one, why, one might ask, if the LDS Church is run by revelation, received directly by a prophet of God, why is there a need for a combined council to deliberate? And why are they weighing scriptures, teachings of other church leaders, and past practice? Why are they not just asking God? But asking God doesn't even make the list. Number two, the token nod is of course given to the president of the church receiving revelation. That was the first thing that Elder Christofferson mentioned, you recall. But this is only a theoretical possibility and not a practical reality in the LDS Church. Nor has it been for almost a hundred years. Now, it's been over a hundred years. Once again, this was written back in 2015. Note that the example given is DNC 138, the vision of Joseph F. Smith of the redemption of the dead. This is the last section in the Doctrine and Covenants and was received in 1918. Three more years will mark a century with no canonized scripture. And now I have to say that it was two years ago that marked a century with no canonized scripture. A strange state of affairs in a church that claims continuing revelation through living prophets. Number three, Elder Christofferson cites to Official Declaration 2 in an effort to find historical support for the new method of establishing doctrine by means of the combined council of the First Presidency and the Quorum of the Twelve. But Official Declaration 2 does not support his argument. The Twelve had no part in any deliberations. Rather, after being approved by the counselors in the First Presidency, it, quote, was then presented to the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles who unanimously approved it, period, end of quote. No input or deliberations from the Twelve are mentioned, at least not in the language of Official Declaration 2 that we have at the end of the Doctrine and Covenants. Then I ask the question, or has this process, i.e. this process of deciding things by deliberations of the Quorum of the Twelve and the First Presidency together in council, been going on longer than the public record suggests? President Eyring spills the beans. President Eyring described a similar process of arriving at revelation through council debate in an unscripted comment he made during a press conference in October of 2007. And by the way, this video can be found on the church website in the newsroom under date of October 7, 2007 and the article titled Church President Names New Leaders. This was in the context of Thomas S. Monson being named the new president of the church after the passing of Gordon B. Hinckley. Just find that article, scroll down a little bit, and you will see the video to which I refer. And once again, you can find this comment by President Eyring starting at the 25-minute mark of the video. In relating his first experience attending a high-level church council with the First Presidency and Apostles present, Henry B. Eyring tells of his initial expectation that all present would receive revelation and be on the same page regarding the issue under consideration. He was surprised to find that was not, repeat not, the case, but that those present held very different ideas and had no reluctance in voicing dissenting opinions. Here are prophets of God, Elder Eyring says, here are prophets of God, and they are disagreeing 
Exclamation point. President Eyring said that as the discussion cycled around, to use his words, the leaders eventually began to line up in their opinions. Now, this does not seem remarkable given the strictly hierarchical nature of church leadership, where apostles enter and leave rooms in order of their seniority. That's how entrenched the hierarchical nature of church leadership is. The apostles actually enter and leave rooms in order of their seniority. Yet President Eyring considers this somewhat mundane process of achieving consensus a miracle. Yes, that's what he calls it. This is his miracle now of revelation. He went into the meeting thinking that what would happen is what all Mormons think, because that's what all Mormons are taught, and who are they taught it by the leaders of the church? They're taught that the president of the church, the prophet of God, receives revelation directly from God, and then he pronounces it to the membership of the church and indeed to the entire world. President Irving now advances high enough in church leadership that he's attending a meeting where the first presidency and apostles are present. He fully expects to see revelation received, but instead he sees something completely different. Instead, he sees a council meeting where different views are held. People talk about it. It goes around and around as people talk and express their different views. And eventually, eventually, people come to the same conclusion. There is a consensus reached. And it is that consensus, by the way. It is that consensus that constitutes now the new definition of revelation. And it is that new definition of revelation that President Eyring calls a miracle. But I would just say this, the way to look at Harvard and its effect, at least personally, is with this story. When I first came as the president of Ricks College, I attended my first meeting that I'd ever been in watching the general authorities of the church, the first presidency and others, running a meeting. I had been studying for the 10 years I was a professor at Stanford how you make decisions in meetings, in groups, so I got a chance, here's my chance to see the way the Lord's servants do it, of which I now am one. But my first, I, I looked at it with my Harvard, Stanford eyes, and I thought, this is the strangest conversation I've, I mean, here are the prophets of God, and they're disagreeing in an openness that I had never seen in business. In business, you're, you're careful when you're with the bosses, you know. Here they were just, and I, I watched this process of them disagreeing, and I thought, good heavens. You know, I thought it, 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 revelation would come to them all, and, uh, and they'd all see things the same way in some sort of, you know. And it was more open than anything I had ever seen in all the groups I'd ever studied in business. I was just dumbfounded. But then after a while, the conversation cycled around, and they began to agree. I saw the most incredible thing, that here are these very strong, very bright people, all with different opinions. Suddenly the opinions began to just line up, and I thought, I've seen a miracle. I've seen unity come out of this wonderful, open kind of exchange that I'd never seen in all my studies of government or business or anywhere else. And so I thought, oh, what a miracle. And then it was President Harold B. Lee was chairing the meeting. Uh, I think he, anyway, it was, a, it was a Board of Education meeting. And uh, I thought, now he's going to announce the decision because I've seen this miracle. And he said, wait a minute. I think, I think we'll bring this matter up again some other time. I sense there is someone in the room who is not yet settled. And they went on to the next item, and I thought, that is strange. 
And then I watched somebody, one of the brethren, one of the, I think one of the 12, walk past President Lee and say, thank you. <laughs> There's something I didn't have a chance to say. So I want you to know, the main thing you do about Harvard and Stanford, and I love that, I hope this doesn't offend my wonderful friends, forget it. Uh, we're in another kind of thing here. Uh, uh, this is what it claims to be. This is the true church of Jesus Christ. Revelation is real, even in what you call the business kinds of settings. And uh, a great man whom I love and will always love, President Harold B. Lee, uh, taught me a great lesson that says, no, uh, we can be open, we can be direct, we can, we can talk about differences in a way that you can't anywhere else because we're all just looking for the truth. We're not trying to win. We're not trying to make our argument dominate. We just want to find what's right. And then a man sensitive enough to sense, without anybody saying anything, that somebody in the room was not settled. <laughs> and uh, again, there's a, there's, a kind of, uh, there's a kind of process of openness and yet coming together and having confidence that you know what the Lord wants, not what we want, that is, uh, I loved Harvard, I loved Stanford, had a great time there, my wife is here. We spent the first 10 years of our married life. I was a professor at Stanford, thought I'd stay there forever, and had tenure, and how happy we were, and then went to Rexburg, Idaho from there, uh, and uh, then came down here and found out that there was a kind of, uh, making decisions and working together in groups that I have never seen anywhere else in the world except here. In his off-the-cuff remarks, President Eyring pulls back the curtain and reveals the actual methods of arriving at decisions in top-level LDS church councils. In so doing, he fundamentally shifts the definition of revelation within the Mormon paradigm. No longer is revelation direct communication from God to the prophet and president of the church. Rather, revelation is arrived at through council consensus after debating different positions. If President Eyring was shocked to find out how church decisions are really made, perhaps we can be forgiven for feeling a similar surprise. And President Eyring dates this story back to the early 1970s when Harold B. Lee was president. In the immortal lyrics of Ace, How long has this been going on? <laughs> Creedal Mormonism? Once the church council has completed its deliberations, the agreed-upon doctrine is then set forth in official church publications. Although these publications amount to the same thing as creeds, the church uses different words to describe them. Understandably so. Creeds have a somewhat disreputable pedigree in the LDS Church. Instead, words such as official declarations and proclamations are used. This point is made in the May 4, 2007 Mormon Newsroom article referenced above, which states, quote, This doctrine resides in the four standard works of Scripture, in official declarations and proclamations, and the articles of faith. So that's where the doctrine is found, not only in the scriptures, but also in official declarations and proclamations. An official declaration of doctrine resulting from church council deliberations is a creed. An official proclamation of doctrine resulting from church council deliberations is also a creed. 
The LDS Church has long been clear about this definition, and the LDS Church has long labeled such creeds as an emblem of apostate Christianity. What are these official declarations and proclamations? Doubtless, the 1995 proclamation titled The Family, a proclamation to the world, and the 2000 declaration titled The Living Christ. Both of these documents are creedal statements of belief, arrived at through the deliberations of all 15 apostles in the First Presidency and Quorum of the Twelve. Significantly, they also bypass the need for being presented to the membership of the Church for a sustaining vote, as would be necessary if they were introduced as Scripture binding upon Church members. Instead, the Church has found a convenient way of establishing doctrine through declarations and proclamations without the input or approval of the members. The most recent example is a June 29, 2015 letter sent out to all congregations in the United States and Canada regarding the Church's position on gay marriage. Though no mention of revelation appears in the letter, Mormons are assured of its doctrinal reliability. How? By the fact it appears over the imprimatur of, quote, the Council of the First Presidency and Quorum of the Twelve Apostles of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. A pattern appears to be developing. But have no fear. The letter on gay marriage is not just the consensus of personal opinions of council members. It cites to a solid doctrinal basis. Unfortunately, that doctrinal basis is the family, a proclamation to the world, a proclamation issued by the very same council. Something is starting to smell fishy here, as well as look a little circular. Creedal Christianity, a sign of apostasy. It appears from the evidence that the publication of creeds decided upon by deliberations in the LDS Church councils has taken the place of revelation, and that the sun has gone down over the prophets. Bruce R. McConkie gave his view of such a situation on page 122 of his seminal work, Mormon Doctrine, which has now been removed from the shelves of Deseret Book. Quote, From the earliest era of apostate Christianity, now note, this is Bruce R. McConkie writing this in his book, Mormon Doctrine. See how this lines up with the way the LDS Church is operating now. From the earliest era of apostate Christianity, the leaders of the then existing church, no longer finding revelation available and incapable of speaking by the power of the Holy Ghost so as to have the resultant record vouchsafed as authoritative scripture. That was a long parenthetical comment by Bruce R. McConkie. He says the leaders of apostate Christianity sought other ways of settling religious and philosophical disputes, and of establishing authoritative doctrine. How did they do this, Elder McConkie? Well, he tells us, by the 4th century, formal documents called creeds had been formulated, adopted by councils, and the dogmas expressed in them imposed upon the church, insofar as the political power of the moment was able to enforce such an imposition. End of quote from Elder McConkie. That doesn't sound at all familiar to what's going on today in the LDS Church, does it? Once again, by the 4th century, formal documents called creeds had been formulated, adopted how? By councils, and the dogmas expressed in them imposed upon the church, insofar as the political power of the moment was able to enforce such an imposition. Once again, that's what Elder McConkie wrote. Now, the part about political power is especially pregnant, given the possibility the proclamation on the family was issued for the pedestrian purpose of deploying priesthood power 
in the Hawaiian gay marriage lawsuit. Conclusion. Is history repeating itself? Are the church councils of mainline Christianity once decried by the LDS Church as a trademark of apostasy, now the accepted method of establishing doctrine in the LDS Church? Are the official declarations and proclamations that are now issued from the LDS Church councils merely a warmed-over version of the old creeds formerly inveighed against? It is hard to forget that at the very inception of Mormonism, Jesus Christ told Joseph Smith that the creeds were an abomination in his sight, and the professors of those creeds were all corrupt, that they have a form of godliness, but deny the power thereof. Harsh words indeed, but do those harsh words apply only to creeds of former times, or might they have application to creeds of our day as well? A friend of mine once presciently observed, the only difference between the LDS Church and the Catholic Church is 2,000 years. As it turns out, the LDS Church may be ahead of the curve. That's about all for tonight. Until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air.